Yeah, on. Twins and an album. Nubs, how are we? Toph, pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Can't complain, eh? Hey, it's, you know, it's summer in uh, Metro Detroit, Michigan. It's a good. Good place to be. Good time to be here. Hot, it's a, hot, it's, steamy, yeah. steamy. It, it's a little on the warm side. It's a little on the warm side. But listen, this is not a show about meteorology, nor is this meant to be a weather report. This is meant to talk about a very special band. You know what, though? It, it, it could get hot tonight because... These are some these are some hot guys in this band, huh? <laughs> we're we're gonna get to the the uh, topic of cosmetics certainly tonight of a of a rock band. Um, but welcome to episode five. Uh, this is two twins in an album. So my last episode, which was episode three, talking about Oasis, I kicked things off with a definition. And tonight I'm going to kick things off with uh, a Wikipedia definition because as we all know, Wikipedia is absolutely correct about everything, right? I mean, this is common knowledge. But one of the things I do think they're correct on is something that's going to be a key topic tonight. The, the definition I want to provide, we're going to talk a little bit about session musicians and what a session musician is and how that leads to the story of the band Toto. Now, Wikipedia will tell you, and they're actually correct on this one, that a session musician, otherwise known as a studio musician or a backing musician, are musicians hired to perform in recording sessions or live performances. Session musicians are usually not permanent members of a musical ensemble or band. They work behind the scenes and rarely achieve individual fame in their own right as soloists or band leaders. Now, before we get to how this applies to this band and this episode, we're going to go round and round LPs on the radar. Nubs, what do you got, buddy? I thought it'd be interesting for this show since basically all I've done is chose albums from before I was born to choose three albums that have actually come out in the last year. The first one is uh, Cattle Decapitation, which is an absolutely fascinating band with a band name that I'm sure has already gotten some people um, a, a little questionable. But they're in the death metal genre. They're an, an absolutely 
outstanding band from a technical perspective. They certainly border on some prog metal. The lead vocalist, Travis Ryan, is one of these guys that uses his voice as an instrument in all these extraordinary different ways. And they put out an album in the past year, Death Atlas, on Metal Blade Records. Worth checking out. Even though the band name is a little, I don't know, shall we say, uh, maybe a little risque? It's a little strong. But it's memorable. If you're a death metal outfit, it, it works. If you were an adult contemporary artist, that might not, you might not move units with the name cattle decapitation, but I think for the death metal genre, it probably works. Okay. If you think the name is strong, uh, check out some of the album covers. Uh, next would be the new Pearl Jam album, Gigaton. You and I have had lots of conversations about Pearl Jam and, how they haven't made a, a really great album for a while. And that's pretty true. <laughs> and, and this is consistent with that. But as a big fan of the band, still interested in what they have. So I've been diving into that a little bit more. And a band that I know you and I both love, Starflyer 59, who put out yeah. Young in My Head last year on Tooth & Nail Records. And this is just a band that seems like it it started off as a incredibly promising innovative band within its genre and it seems like starfire has just gotten better and better as the years have gone on and young in my head is right up there with some of my favorite uh albums by starfire 59 so this one is absolutely worth checking out i mean that band's coming up on like 30 years jason martin is really amazing to have survived you know coming up as a tooth and nail band and now still doing it for that long is really impressive. I love that band. Obviously it's, that's a great pick. Really groundbreaking and always ahead of their time. What's round around for you, Toph? Well, the first one for me is, uh, is, uh, by the great Neil Diamond. It's called beautiful noise. Uh, it was the album that was produced by Robbie Robertson and it was a departure for Neil Diamond. It was uh, a bit more diverse, um, a bit more atmospheric, and obviously, you know, with Robbie Robertson on production, a, a very interesting listen. So uh, a great album from the 70s from the great Neil Diamond. The second is by Silver Tomb. This is uh, Kenny Hickey's band from Typo Negative, obviously a very, very important band to us. And Johnny Kelly on drums as well, who played with Typo. And it's called Edge of Existence. Kenny Hickey's voice and Kenny Hickey's singing was always something that was a really cool element of Typo Negative sound which was really all throughout their entire career, but certainly from Bloody Kisses on until the end. I think we'll reference Typo quite a bit here on the podcast, because like you mentioned, really, really important band to you and I, for sure. Oh, we will certainly be talking about Typo in, in many capacities, but Silver Tomb, Edge of Existence, a great listen for any of you, uh, you know, metal fans out there and certainly any Typo fans. The last one is uh, something completely different, the band XTC, uh, Oranges and Lemons, their 1989 record, uh, King for a Day, Mayor of Simpleton, you know, two great tracks, great singles. Really like that album, really love that band, um, you know, Andy Partridge and those guys, a very uh, interesting band to sort of dive into and Orange's Lemons, a great album cover. I'm a sucker for colorful album covers, but also a great listen from those guys. I don't know if you've had a chance, but XTC joined the, the recent huge wave of classic bands that have made a movie about their career. 
It's a great story. It's a, yeah. very, it's a very interesting to, road that that I'll have to check that out. I'll yeah, check, check it out for that. sure. You'd love it. Yeah. That's a good call. So let's get on to the main event here and the debut album from Toto in 1978 is certainly the topic of conversation. And we're also going to be diving into a band just as much, a very interesting group that formed in an interesting way that recorded in an interesting way and has evolved and made it through the last 40 plus years in a very interesting way. At the time in the late seventies session musicians, they, they sometimes joined bands, but they really didn't band together to form an entire group comprised of all session guys. That was very unique. So it's kind of the first time where you saw a bunch of professionals at their craft, at their instrument, decided, hey, we want to be in a band. Unless you're aware of any nubs, I can't think of any, at least at this time, that were fully formed and comprised of studio musicians. Steely Dan is probably the other main one. Steely Dan was definitely comprised of guys that had been used to being behind the scenes. And interestingly enough, there's some pretty strong ties between Steely Dan and Toto. There's a good relationship there. There sure are. And with Steely Dan, it was always two members and everything else kind of rotated, right? Whereas Toto, they were a six piece right away and, and pretty much all made up of these studio guys. And back then, you know, once you had a session gig, oftentimes you kind of hung on to it because you were making good money, didn't have to tour didn't have to travel. And in a lot of cases, these session guys, and, and certainly we'll, we'll get to this when we talk about Toto, but oftentimes didn't really look the part, didn't love being on stage, didn't really need a lot of that feedback and gratification that a lot of performing musicians do. They were kind of happy being in the studio, contributing their craft, having their work be reflected on tape, and not really wanting to get into the touring lifestyle. Now, here's what's really interesting about this band. They all met each other in high school. These are San Fernando Valley kids who were kind of born into this. The story of Toto really kind of starts with Joe Percaro and also a guy named Marty Pache. These two guys worked together on the Glenn Campbell show. By the way, how much talent has come out of the Glenn Camp? I, I, I'm not really that familiar with this show, but you hear all the time about really good writers and producers and musicians and all these people that worked on that. It must have been a hell of a show. I never actually watched it. You see a lot of clips if you watch, you know, documentaries or specials about the 60s and 70s. You tend to see some clips from the Glenn Campbell show. So, yeah, there must have been something to it. We, we've had this episode in mind for a few days. Joe Percaro actually died just last week. He was 90 years old, which was just kind of coincidental timing for us digging into Toto for the past few days. But Joe had three sons and all three sons were in this band. And then Marty Pache, his son, David Pache, wrote every single song except for two on the album that we're going to pick through tonight. So it kind of starts with these old rocker session guys 
during the 60s and 70s who had these sons who ended up being tremendous talents. You know, before we kind of dig into the specific band members and then we dig into the album, I think there are a couple of things that really sort of define Toto as we sort of look back. This idea of of talent over cosmetics. This was not a, a good looking, <laughs> polished bunch of guys, as you often saw in the late 70s and early 80s in rock bands. They didn't really look the part. They were just really talented. If you go back and watch interviews with the band, not just recently, but it's like a group of introverts. Right. You know, and performing was was like an art form and you had to be able to do it. And th- these guys were all kind of shy, introverted artists. It's so true. It's so true. Here's a few things that Toto just did not have. They really didn't have a front man. At this stage in, in music, front men were very important. They didn't have one. They didn't have a genre. Now, we'll talk through whether or not that played to their strengths or to their weaknesses or that hurt them or helped them, but they did not have a go-to genre classification. They did not have the support of critics. Critics demolished this band on a pretty consistent basis. Now, there's been a lot of, you know, hindsight critique of people now saying, boy, what a great band and boy, we get it now. And we understand what these guys were all about. But at the time, these guys did not have the critics and sort of the musical press on their side. And they didn't have the look, you know, as we said, they just, they did not have the bravado and the appearance and the swagger and the approach of most rock and roll bands of that era. But here's what they did have an absolutely absurd amount of talent. So we're going to continue on in talking about the band, but we'll certainly start digging into the time period of this album. So let's go ahead and call it the nerdy deeds. Dunder cheap. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? So it's true that, Toto is kind of this hodgepodge of studio musicians, but it's not a bunch of guys that didn't know each other. They went to high school together. They were familiar with each other. And certainly they were in families that were very well known for being successful in the studio musician space. What really brought these guys together, a completely different artist on a completely different album. It was Boz Skaggs and his classic album, Silk Degrees. And that album went five times platinum which is pretty good, pretty decent. So who are these guys? So Joe Percaro, who I mentioned passed away just a few days ago, famous, accomplished studio percussionist, had three boys that were in the band Toto. The first is Mike Percaro. We won't spend a ton of time on him because he actually joined the band after the Toto 4 album. And he played bass and he was in the band for a long time. He actually passed away in 2015 of ALS. His second son is Steve Perker. He's an original member of the group. Now, Steve started as a drummer, but then became a synth innovator, almost kind of a synth wizard of the late 70s in incorporating synth into rock. It was still something that people were learning more about. And I think Steve Percaro's a bit of an underappreciated contributor towards incorporating a lot of these synthesizer elements into rock music. Now, what is Steve Percaro probably most known for? 
he wrote the song human nature for Michael Jackson on the thriller record, which is one of the best songs on thriller. He wrote that song. Probably the best song on thriller. He, so I mentioned earlier that David Page wrote every song on tonight's album. One of the songs that wasn't written by him was written by Steve Percaro. And we'll get into that on the track by track. Perhaps the most important contribution from Steve Percaro was that he dated Rosanna Arquette, which was the inspiration for the song Rosanna. And you know, Rosanna Arquette, I mean, shoot, good for him. That's, that's not bad. It's pretty good. That's one of like 10 total songs that are the name of a woman. A lot of that. A lot of that. We got a, got a couple of those tonight. He left the band in 1987 to score film and television, but came back and he's actually part of the band currently. So that's Steve, the other brother. And I think we're probably going to talk about him a great deal tonight is Jeff Percaro. Jeff Percaro was the drummer of Toto. At age 17, he joined Sonny and Cher's touring band as a drummer. Then proceeded to, as we touched on a little bit earlier, play with Steely Dan through much of the 70s. He did all the drums on their Katie Lied record. He played the drums on the song FM, you know, one of their biggest hits. This is an incredibly accomplished musician prior to Toto. I'll, I'll just give you a few. Here, here's a few. This doesn't even cover all of it. But he played on Mother by Pink Floyd, Off the Wall. He played on Beat It and Human Nature on Thriller. He played on Human Touch by Bruce Springsteen. He played on When a Man Loves a Woman by Michael Bolton. I mean, come on. He played on the song Torture by the Jacksons. He played on I Keep Forgetting by Michael McDonald. Later became Regulators by Warren G. That's probably how most, most people understand it. He played on Arthur's Theme by Christopher Cross. He played on a Brothers Johnson record. He obviously played on the aforementioned Silk Degrees. And beyond all those examples, played on a song that you and I both love, Randy Newman's I Love L.A. I mean, that you could have just said that, and that would have been enough for me. <laughs> Let me just give you a few things that were said about him. Bruce Springsteen said he had a tremendous beauty to his playing that went beyond craft and precision into the realm of the spirit. It was with that spirit that he graced and blessed my music. He was a soul man. Donald Fagan from Steely Dan said he really changed the way people played the drums. Eddie Van Halen said he was one of the best drummers in the world, definitely the groove master. He was just so heavy. And his bandmate, Steve Lukather, said there were lots of guys who played faster or with more chops, but there is no living soul alive who played a groove like that. It's all finesse. It's that little something extra. Some big names there. Now, Nubs, as our resident drummer, give your thoughts on Jeff Percaro. His hands flow differently than most drummers. He didn't play in an athletic way. He played in a musical way. And he's one of the first drummers that I ever saw that was a truly melodic drummer. He played the drums in a melodic way just as much as he did in a rhythmic way. Now, make no mistake, the man could groove, but he also played with great melody. And the way that his sticks bounced off the drums was different. The way that his hands moved when he hit the drums was completely different. This was just a really unique unique talent. There's so many things to think about when you think about Jeff Percaro and 
But for me, I, I don't know, man. When I think about Jeff Parker, I just, I don't know. I just, uh, I just, I keep forgetting, you know. <laughs> he did, he did lay down that groove, didn't he? I don't know. I just, I, just, I, I keep forgetting, man. You keep forgetting? I just, I keep forgetting. You mean like that? I mean, just listen to that. Just focus on what that hi-hat is doing. Yeah, that's not a machine. No. I mean, are you feeling that, T? you feeling that? Oh. oh. Am I? And then just think about it. I can't forget when I don't love her anymore. And there, he, and there comes Michael. Let's ever be the same again. I mean, you combine Procaro with Michael. Like, how can you go wrong? Are we going to do a Michael McDonald off? Because I, because you know, I didn't think we were going to do this, but I, I think, I mean, you kind of broke the seal just then. I think we might have to do one. I think, I think we better. The door is open. All right. Well, let me find a let me find a track here. All right. Uh, who's going to go first? Why don't you? Since you're warmed up, why don't you go first? Okay. You'll like this one. You'll remember this track. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh great one. Great one. Okay. Here we go. <clears throat> let me get ready. Okay. This is Nubs, by the way. From somewhere back in her long ago. Instead of thought of forget to be bad and hard to recreate what had yet to be created. What's in her life? He okay, that's, a, that's enough. That's enough. For his nostalgic tale. Okay. That was terrific. I think it's going to be even better for our list. I think there might be a slight delay, which will make it even better. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. So do I get a rebuttal? Well, of course. <clears throat> okay. That's a lot of pressure. It's quite a piano player right there. Could gamble somewhere back in the long ago. Cinnamon of this world, see, trying on to create what it yet to be created. Well, what's it Who won? I mean, we'll have to we'll have to let the listeners decide. I think I should get at least one bonus point for at least coming in in the right spot. You you were so excited. You came in uh, two measures early. I came in early. But how can you not be excited? You're you're singing Michael. I mean, who can blame a man? He gets me excited. He gets us all excited. Michael McDonald sang on a really really awesome Toto song called I'll be over you. So there is a, there is a McDonald tie in here to not just Jeff Percara playing drums, but to the band strong tie in. And they toured together several times. In fact, one of the last times we saw Toto was in Windsor, Canada and uh, Toto and Michael McDonald shared the same bill. Oh, that's right. So not to, not to downer off of the uh, Michael McDonald off, which, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But, uh, but Jeff Barcaro died in 1992 very tragically, very suddenly. And um, 
And it created a lot of controversy over how it happened. And he was planting in his garden and the family said he was poisoned by pesticide. The doctors say that he had a heart attack due to many years of cocaine abuse, which became kind of a whole public fiasco. But bottom line is a, a very special drummer in the history of rock music and certainly a huge part of this band. This band wasn't sure they were going to be able to go on following Jeff Barcaro's death. But, you know, with the family connection, they were still obviously very close with Jeff's father. He actually contributed to a few Toto recordings, et cetera. Their feeling was go for it. That's what Jeff would want you to do. Keep going, keep plugging away. And that's what the band did. They hired Simon Phillips, who's an outstanding drummer, uh, and he played with the band for 20 years. Think about just some of the things that he left behind in terms of legacy, just drum parts, iconic drum parts, like the that halftime shuffle groove that he does to intro Rosanna. That's like air drum central, you know, for anybody who <laughs> has ever played air drums. And, you know, Africa now has become this incredibly popular song for yet another generation and his percussion and drum work on that song is vital to why that song is so beloved. Very cool. Very interesting. And also very sad that, you know, he's a guy that, that we lost, you know, such a long time ago. Now, David Pache is a tremendously important part of this band and this episode, because again, he wrote every single song except for two on this record. And David Page is really the reason why Toto was able to hit the ground running and get a record deal and kind of get all of the advantages that they had from the get-go to record this debut. And that really came from his contributions on the Boss Gags record. Co-writing every song, five times platinum. They did, these guys did not have a problem getting a recording contract. And that's really because of David Page. He's kind of the workhorse of the band. You know, he's the one that sings with sort of more of that everyman voice. He does the verses in Africa and sings a couple songs on the album tonight. He wrote Lady Love Me One More Time for George Benson. He wrote Got to Be Real for Cheryl Lynn. And within Toto, he wrote Africa, Rosanna, Hold the Line, 99, Pamela, Stop Loving You, Make Believe, and Holy Anna, which is damn near fully encompassing list of their most famous songs. It's like a best of right there. David Page is just an absolute freaking professional, a very, very intelligent, very, very humble guy who is really interesting to listen to, but kind of to the point you made early on, Nubs an introvert, a workhorse. This is not a guy that wanted to get out and do a bunch of touring. In fact, he took many years off touring with this band because he wasn't that into it. David Page was the primary piano and keyboard player. So while Steve Percaro handled a lot of the synthesizer keyboard elements that were more layers on top, David Page was really providing the keys and the piano work that you hear so important to so many Toto songs and certainly contributes towards many of the tracks that we're going to go through tonight. There's two more guys. The first is Steve Lukather, who is probably, well, he's certainly a top five favorite guitarist of mine, maybe even a top three 
of all time, a guitar God, at least in my (laughs) humble opinion. And an interesting story in that he wasn't born with a studio musician father. In fact, he was self-taught. But he grew up in L.A. He was uh, San Fernando Valley. He met the Porqueros and David Page in high school, Ulysses S. Grant High School in San Fernando. And he's kind of the rocker. But what's interesting is, as the rocker, as the guitar god, I mean, this guy shreds. He's an incredible guitar player. He actually wrote and sang some of Toto's most well-known songs. And ironically, they're, they're the two, at least two of them, that went to number one on the Billboard adult contemporary charts. And that's, I won't hold you back off Toto 4 and I'll be over you off of Fahrenheit. But in addition, he sang 90 lead vocals on 99 on one of the songs tonight, Georgie Porgy. I mean, the, he had this very soft voice that actually contributed to, towards more of the softer adult contemporary side of Toto, which is interesting. And the two songs that he primarily wrote that became two of their most famous ballads were written by Steve Lukather. So the rocker, but also when it came to his work with Toto, had plenty of a soft side. But if, if any guitar players out there have not watched him play, just go on YouTube and just watch the guy. He's absolutely incredible. Lukather is a uh, guitarist's guitarist. There's a long list of musicians that earned the admiration and respect of their peers before they earned it from casual rock and roll fans. And that's Steve Lukather. I'm sure if you asked the greatest guitarist in the world who they thought was the greatest guitarist in the world, Steve Lukather would show up on a lot of lists. Steve Lukather has been the constant of this band. When it comes to touring, when it comes to keeping it going, all of the other members have sort of dabbled in and out of the band at one point or another, every single one, except for Lukather. Every record they've done, he's been on. Every tour they've done, he's been on. He is really the constant. And I think that that's been really important. Now on to Bobby Kimball. Now, Bobby Kimball is the lead vocalist. And, you know, his voice is probably the most recognizable. Uh, and as we go through the track by track, you'll hear it. But obviously, you know, the, the chorus section on Africa, the pre-chorus slash secondary verse section on Rosanna, you know, that's all Bobby Kimball's voice. He came into the band in a very interesting way because he's the only guy that wasn't an LA guy. He wasn't a session guy. He grew up in pretty small town, Louisiana. And he walks in with his mustache and, you know, kind of whether it's back in the seventies or whether it's recently you see him perform and he kind of looks like your uncle out there singing karaoke or something. I mean, he's, he's, he does not look the part. But my goodness, the voice this guy had, particularly during the early Toto work, you can absolutely see why they demanded that he join this project. Because with Toto's genreless approach, where you hear some jazz, you hear some pop, you hear some kind of soulful rock, that sort of thing, Bobby Kimball's voice was tremendously important. And one of the things that's also interesting is I've mentioned there are two songs Paige did not write on the album tonight, and one of them was contributed by Bobby Kimball. 
So he did contribute some songwriting, but came into the band as a little bit of an outsider and certainly not a natural front man. You know, this guy was a singer, not a front man of a rock and roll band. So, I mean, this guy was very important. Now he got kicked out of the band twice. What happened was he came in as this guy with this magical voice acquired sort of a drug habit, drug problem, lost his voice, couldn't do it, couldn't tour, and they finally just had to let him go. And it was kind of the first shoe to drop as far as this band having to spend so much time resetting with new members and to lose your lead singer was kind of a big deal for this band at its peak. This was right after Toto 4 came out. Now they replaced him with Joseph Williams, who's actually the son of John Williams, the famous composer. And then he was kicked out of the band for similar reasons, replaced by Fergie Fredrickson, who's actually a Michigan guy, believe it or not. But I think the thing about Bobby Kimball is he gets a little bit of a bad rap from Toto fans. In his prime, I mean, the dude was a monster. This guy could belt it out. But obviously created a lot of drama for the band. I almost compare him to Mike Love of the Beach Boys, where... They come in, they're singers, they do a little bit of songwriting, but obviously other members of the band are kind of more of the creative forces. And they never really find that connection with the fans beyond just providing the voice. And I think a lot of what you hear about Mike Love from Beach Boy fans, maybe even to some extent about Roger Daltrey from Who fans, are these guys where they get kind of designated as singers and not much else as far as kind of being the face of the band or being one of the more kind of likable elements of the band. And I always thought that, that Kimball got a little bit of a bad rap from some fans. There's a couple other examples of that too. Like a good example is dream theater. James Labrie is the Mm -hmm. singer. He is far and away the most disposable member of the band and the least loved, you know, people go see dream theater and they buy dream theater albums for every reason aside from James Labrie, he's just kind of there, you know, and, and handles the vocals and tells the stories of the songs through singing, but, but is not the focal point. I think that's, that's very similar to Toto. To your point, Kimball howls and has some legendary performances with this band, but clearly there was some baggage there too. And at times, Lukather and company were looking for, something very different from what he brought to the table. It's a band that didn't always get it right, but sure as hell got it right quite a bit. Why don't we get to wonder of stories? I think that most people start with this band at total four and kind of either choose to stop there or sort of work their way back. Is that the way it went for you nubs with, with this band and sort of discovering them and then digging a little bit deeper or, or was it, was it different than I think what it would have been for most? I do agree with you that most fans started there for me. It actually started with hold the line and I was on a, uh, on an airplane and this was at the time where, 
they had just started introducing on-demand entertainment on an airplane. So you could buy headphones and plug in the headphones. And then there was a selection of, you know, maybe 50 songs or something like that, that you could play by punching in a code. And the song selection wasn't really speaking my language, but one of the songs on there was Hold the Line by Toto. And so for the duration of this plane ride, however long it was, I I must have listened to Hold the Line like 30 times. Those were not songs that were played on the radio stations that, that I was listening to at the time. Those were not played on rock radio in Detroit. And they sure as heck were not played on alternative rock radio. And I would probably guess that for the most part, they really weren't played on classic rock radio. So there weren't easy ways to hear Toto when you were, you know, a teenager in Metro Detroit. But I listened to Hold the Line just over and over again on this plane. And like most things with Toto, the further you dive into it, the more musicianship and fascination you uncover with the performances. I didn't know anything about what album that song was off of and didn't know much about what happened to the band in the decades that followed when that song came out. I so was on that same flight. I so did the same thing. That's that song. Cause you know, when that guitar came in and we'll get to it, but you just, it was like, Whoa, you know, this is Toto. It's a, it's a good hold. The line is a great starter song for this band. And and certainly was for many. And we'll get to it in the track by track. I had a legendary called it the eighties tape when I was in high school and you know, people would like ride in my car with me just to hear I mean, it was like the greatest mix of eighties songs ever two sided real to real. And on this 80s tape that had one hit wonders, famous groups, famous songs, a couple of obscure bits. Every other song in this thing, had, you know, was from one artist. There were no other repeats. I put four Toto songs on this thing. It was Africa. It was Rosanna. It was Hold the Line. And it was I Won't Hold You Back, which was also the only slow song. This was kind of a party tape. But I Won't Hold You Back had to make the cut. So I just really developed a real love for this band pretty early. And this probably was a couple few years after the airplane hold the line. I think that's when we were a bit younger. So I started really with Toto four and kind of worked backwards, which I think is what most people did. And when you start with four, I mean, Toto four won six Grammys and you can understand why, you know, you listen to it top to bottom. I mean, it's really good. What's really interesting is this was the band's peak and immediately after this album, the band kind of started to fall apart. Now they picked back up and they got, you know, new singers and they, they made a really good album called the seventh one, which was their seventh album that sold really well. But as far as this original lineup that we're kind of digging into tonight, total four was kind of the end of it. Now, if you backtrack, they put out a third album called turn back, which really wasn't that good. It was very, very produced, you know, had a couple good songs on it, but turn back didn't do that well. And it actually put a lot of pressure on them to come through with total four. So the third album and the fourth album kind of work together and demonstrate a lot of the urgency that the band had to really do something special on total four. And they did 
if you go further backwards, their second album was called Hydra and it didn't sell as well as the debut. It wasn't critically, nothing they did was very well received critically, but it was critically pretty panned. But if you go back, Hydra is a really good album, really good follow-up to this debut. If you go back and listen to it, especially with kind of a prog ear and a prog approach, I, I think that was where the band kind of got the most proggy and the most experimental. It's a really good listen. Yeah, it's my favorite Toto album, actually, Hydra is. You make a strong case for how unique this band is in the way that people discover them. You know, most people discover a band in their first or second album, and then they move forward with that band. So many listeners discovered Toto on the fourth album and then moved backwards. And then probably eventually, if they truly became loyal fans of the band, would move forward with them. But most of the band's kind of legendary work is captured in these first four albums. And many of them went unheard by the mainstream until that fourth one. So if we keep working back from four to turn back to Hydra, we're only left with the debut and the focus of tonight's track by track, the Toto debut from 1978. Let's put the needle on the record. Now, much like we did with the Phil Collins record, you know, part of this will be putting yourself in the position of kind of what was coming out at this time. It was, it was kind of the early stage of disco. It was kind of in the midst of this AOR pop kind of sound. But also, you know, you had Led Zeppelin and you had a lot of heavy rock that was, you know, starting to, you know, sort of dominate much of rock radio. And you can tell that what Toto kind of tried to do was to somehow try and accomplish so many different things from a genre standpoint, that idea gets going right off the bat with the instrumental track one child's anthem. So at two minutes 45, it really does kind of set up as more of an instrumental intro than anything else. Theatrical, aggressive, hard hitting, a little proggy and very guitar driven. Check out a re more recent within the last five, 10 years live version of this and just listen to Lukather's playing and how much this song really does wail. But a really cool way to come out of the gate with your debut album with an instrumental with this much drive to it. Yeah. It's a pretty brave opener, a lot of ambition in it, really terrific performances as you would come to expect from this band. I mean, there's, there's only a few tracks in the entire catalog from Toto that, that doesn't contain just excellent performances and musicianship, but certainly this is, this was a kind of on fire opener 
and a, an instrumental opener, which, you know, no pop band would ever do. So clearly this is something different, but right off the bat, you start to get this idea of, of this, this journey, this wild ride that Toto's about to take listeners on with this debut album and the unpredictability of it, you know, kicks in after about 10 seconds. And, you know, in some, at some moments, that's the album's best friend. And then at other times it is the album's worst enemy here. It really works. One of the things that's really fun to do uh, on YouTube and it really applies to this album is to listen to isolated tracks, which is always kind of fun to do for bands that have the musicianship like Toto and like many others. And I would say on Child's Anthem, what's really interesting is to listen to Steve Percaro's synth work. He was doing some pretty cool stuff back there. We get into the rocker, I'll supply the love. little bit of a more traditional rock and roll riff obviously it's uh it's a riff and a progression that is fairly common uh it almost sounds a little bit like elo's do ya or many other rock songs that have that same cadence and then it kind of gets into a little bit of this disco-y you know kind of verse where bobby kimball really just rips and that he's lead vocals on this song you can certainly tell that and then it has this very cool outro section that that is very proggy. So it kind of goes from this, you know, kind of traditional thing that you, you might hear on the radio, and this song was a single, into this outro section, which takes up about the last minute and a half with kind of a synth solo and this off-time, you know, sort of guitar groove and really good drumming, obviously, from uh, Jeff Percaro. It's a, it's a nice song. This certainly... I think took you from the whimsical nature of the child's anthem into kind of a, a more straightforward rocker, which obviously Toto could be quite good at. Totally unfiltered song. You could see the band really expressing a lot of their uh, inspirations and a lot of their influences just in this one song. I, I do love that moment because that chorus, the beginning part and what becomes the song's chorus, it is sort of dumb rock. You know, it's this very, almost cliched power chord riff. Mm -hmm. But when those verses come in and, and Kimball just starts like ripping oh, during yeah. those verses or during those, <laughs> during those verses. Kim, if you've seen Kimball, uh, you know, clips of him singing live when he really gets going, he gets the head shake going, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and every time you see, they didn't, they, they really stopped playing. I'll supply the love after the, the first few years, but when he hits those verses, man, he really gets that, 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 that head shake and that mustache is going nuts. It's, it's kind of fun to watch. Great call on the head shake. It's so true. And he, he really starts letting it fly during those verse sections. And then, yeah, that, that outro is, it's all Lukather and certainly Steve Porcaro. I mean, you nailed it. Steve Porcaro is such an underrated pioneer of synthesizers and keyboards. And I mean, what a musician. But the other thing that's really cool about this song is David Hungate with those bass slides. You know, those are really cool. And he uses them in a really crafty way. Very, very complete song. You know, it's got a 
a chorus that you could sing along with. It's got bouncy verses with a lead singer really letting it rip. And then an outro that really shows the musicality. And uh, it, it's a, it's a highlight of the album for sure. Yeah. Great point on David Hungate. We, we kind of, you know, ignored him a little bit. Now he was with the band for the first three and a half albums. He played on most of the total four album before Mike Porcaro took over on bass, very accomplished studio session, uh, bass player. He actually left the band during the total four recording. He, he wanted to move to Nashville and continue with a, with a session career. I think Huntgate was a guy that didn't, didn't necessarily want to or need to be in a band, didn't particularly like touring. And Mike Porcaro came on and really became, I think, the basis that most people associate the band with. And let's remember, again, I'll keep kind of reminding everybody of this, that David Page wrote both of these songs so far. So the variety that you're seeing of this grand instrumental of child's anthem into this rocker i'll supply the love both written by the same guy as was the next song which takes us into a whole different genre so you're really getting three very different looks within the first three tracks this is a very well-known toto song called georgie porgy Steve Lukather on lead vocals. I can't think this is a song that Lukather liked. Um, a little bit comparable to 99 in the style of the song, in the Lukather vocal. Both were hits. Both are fan favorites. It's a good track three. Now, again, you think about what you've got here. Whimsical instrumental opener, rocker track two, and then this kind of yacht rocky you know, groovy thing, which by the way, again, great groove laid down by Jeff Percaro. And you've got three just really different, diverse looks within the first three tracks of this album. I don't love the song. It's very interesting that the female voice is Cheryl Lynn. I kind of touched on earlier, had the big hit song a few years later uh, called Got to Be Real, written by David Page. So that's the female voice kind of during the outro of the song. Not a favorite, but I, I definitely think it's a nice uh, track three for this, uh, this debut effort. Yeah, the, you know, the performances are high quality. I've never really understood Georgie Porgy. It, to me, it was always like a, a song with a tight lid on it, and the lid never kind of gets blown off. It just stays in this pocket the whole time, and it... I suppose if you like that pocket, then Georgie Porgy is a song for you. Um, I really do not. I, I got to tell you, T, this song, in my opinion, this song needed Michael. Mm. This song needed Mr. McDonald. Because mm. you should just think about a little, Georgie Porgy, put it I mean, yeah. how, good, how good would that have been? Yeah. That's, you know, it's insight like that. It is why I think people tune into this show. Well, it's insight and it's performances. I mean, come on. With well, the last last show, we sang uh, "All for Love." We did. We did "All for Love." We did the Michael McDonald off in this episode. I mean, I think everyone's getting their money's worth. But but that's a great thought. I, I McDonald totally could have and would have nailed the Cheryl Lynn part. 
Oh, he would he would have completely nailed it. And it would have brought an element of the song that would have given it a little more texture. You know, shame on them for not getting Michael McDonald on this track. Let's end the podcast. Let's end this album. I, should I've, should have got Michael. I've had it with these guys. Clearly, they they knew him. You know, <laughs> call him up. You know, I, I I must concur with you. They sh- they should have made that phone call. But we will proceed. We will go to track four. One of my favorites on it, Manuela Run. the first song with David Page on lead vocals and you know I've always thought he had a great voice kind of an everyman type voice but this is the first time we hear it on this album I love this song I think this chorus is fantastic I do like when Kimball comes in with some of those vocals at the end to sort of provide that additional layer you like that? Um, to me it feels like he's He's like elbowing his way in. It did. He's young. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's part of why I like it, but I, I just think this song has a lot of bounce to it. it. It's a, it's a really catchy, cool chorus with a great pre-chorus section, really good vocal from page. I, I think it's a great song. It's a groove rocker. And one of those songs that I think only this type of band could have turned from kind of a bland rocker to something with a lot of groove and a lot of beat and a lot of different layers that kind of set it up nicely. Should have been a hit. Really amazed it wasn't even attempted to be a single when you consider that Georgie Porgy was a single and uh, one of the songs that we'll go over later on the album was the fourth single off of it. We can sit all night and talk about how great Jeff Porcaro is, and he was. But David Page has this rhythmic sensibility to his songs that make it very easy to play a groove-ridden drum beat to. Mm-hmm. And this is a great example. You know, it's a 4-4 stomping rocker. That piano part that introduces the song is, is just set up perfectly to build around. And that's what I think Page's big gift was. He could write songs that great musicians, which the rest of Toto were, could really easily and thoughtfully sculpt parts to complement it. And it, it allowed everyone else in the band to elevate and play at their very best. Still to this day, pretty surprised that this one didn't get, you know, fan belovedness status. You don't hear a lot of... Total fans talk a lot about this song. It seems to be a little bit hidden on this first album. There are a couple songs on this I was, uh, that I've been looking forward to kind of pressing you on. And I think this is the first one of them. Do you, I mean, do you like this song? Oh, I love Manuela Run. Yeah. yeah. It, again, just like I'll Supply the Love, to me, it's it's a clear highlight of the album. And, and one that I will seek out and listen to from time to time. Yeah, I think it's one of the better songs on the on the record for sure. Now, after four straight from David Page, this is the first song of two that he did not write. This is music and lyrics by Bobby Kimball. And the song is called You Are the Flower.
of the Flower was Kimball's uh, audition. So when he uh, was, when he showed up wanting to be the lead singer of Toto, he brought You Are the Flower as not just a vocal performance, but as an example of composition. I love this song. (laughs) You know, it's kind of Yacht Rock Max. I think it's really cool that Bobby Kimball, who really, you know, other than a couple of examples, wasn't known as much for his songwriting contributions to this band, because again, he was kind of always the singer. I kind of dig that, you know, you round out side A with this really groovy, really soulful song that I actually think holds up really well. I mean, yeah, it sounds 70s and yeah, it sounds Yacht Rocky, but I don't know. I I really like it. What do you think of You Are the Flower by Bobby Kimball? I think it's kind of (laughs) laughable. You know, it's a little too much yacht in the yacht rock. It's a lot of yacht. It's a lot of yacht. The thing about Kimball, even you kind of mentioned it earlier with the head shake. And I remember the the time we saw him, he kind of comes out in the Hawaiian shirt, you know. Oh, yeah. He was kind of a Tommy Bahama (laughs) guy. Yeah. 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 And this song kind of represents kind of everything that's kind of cheeseball to me about Kimball. I, I think it's kind of a duff throwaway track on the album. I do like Hungate's bass line. I like that they brought the bass way up in the mix. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is at the forefront. And Jeff Percaro's doing a great job of locking in with that. There's a strong bass drum, bass guitar thing going on here. But aside from that, it, it's, it just feels like a lot of nonsense and, and, a, and a painfully stupid lyric. You know. well, well, I'm going to make you feel bad in a second on that because Bobby Kimball wrote this song for his daughter. When you look at the lyrics and you realize that he wrote it for his daughter, it's kind of adorable. You think so? A little kinda sweet. Cute. Kinda kinda sweet. Cu- kind of cute and sweet. So don't you feel like kind of a schmuck, huh? For, you know... <laughs> As a dude with daughters? And the guy wrote it. Yeah, you got two daughters. I mean, the guy wrote it for his daughter. I mean, geez, bah humbug, huh? I don't know. I, I'm going to have to now search uh, through the rock catalog and try and find some better songs about daughters. Look, not everyone has a heart of stone like you. Okay? <laughs> I mean, some people think it's kind of nice that he wrote this sweet song for his daughter. But hey, listen, when it comes to, again, this is late 70s. I think it's a groovy, catchy, cool song that Bobby Kimball contributed and says something about the band that he brings this song to the table on a record that's dominated by one composer and the singer who kind of uses it to audition for the band. They end up putting it on their first record. I think that definitely says something. Hey, T, one day I'll develop feelings. One day. We'll just keep hoping. We'll just keep our fingers crossed on that one, won't we? Well, I hope you're ready to get nice and rocked because here comes Girl Goodbye. Yeah, baby. That, there is some fire in that riff, man. Go on YouTube, watch him play this thing live. Girl Goodbye is a freaking heater. And you're right about that riff. That thing is that thing is hot. 
And again, this is a David Page song. Same guy who wrote Georgie Porgy. I don't think it sounded this way when uh, when Page showed it to the band or laid it down. And this shows what amazing guitar playing and guitar tone can really do to even just a simple riff. But this thing, when you look at the guitar riff, you look at the choruses, you look at Kimball's vocal, which is just insane. I think this song just absolutely jams. Nobody could sing this like Bobby Kimball. Nobody could play the guitar part like Steve Lukather and certainly nobody could capture the polyrhythm bounce like Jeff Percaro. This song is a total jam. This is kind of a windows down, turn it up as loud as you can jam. And, and like you said, you're two songs out from Georgie Porgy, right? Yeah. You're one song away from You Are the Flower. What I really like about this song, and we always talk about this on the podcast, is the sequence. It, kick out, it kicks off side two. It kicks off the second half of the album in a really memorable, really energetic fashion. And it's got that pulsating intro, you know, with the, the synth and the keys that really just build on it. You know that something's coming, and when they, then they just get right into that guitar riff. I mean, it is a, this is a really, really well done song, top to bottom. And good point on the kickoff to side too. This is um, this is blazing, and that's good. That is good rock and Toto getting it right. So we move on to the second song, not written by David Page, words and lyrics and voice, coming from Steve Percaro, taking it back. It's okay. You know, it's, it's very, um, you know, something that has a nice appeal to it and has some nice things going on. Certainly another great groove drum part from Jeff Percaro, but after, you know, the intensity of girl goodbye, kind of bringing you down a little bit with track two on side B, I kind of get it, kind of get the vibe of bringing it down a little bit before the album finishes really strong with the last three tracks. So I'm kind of okay with this being a little bit of a filler interlude. It's cool that Steve Percaro made this contribution toward the album. And then obviously we get to the ending trifecta um, courtesy of David Page. Yeah, there's novelty in that it's a Steve Percaro track. Yeah, for the most part, it sets up a trio of quite a bit of meat here at the end of the album. Agree with that. And here's part one of that trio of meat as nubs just put it a song about the biz. You know, these guys, it's really interesting about Toto. You know, they, they were not, you know, guys playing out of their garage, you know, hoping that, uh, the fat guy in the suit with the cigar was going to show up at their next gig to give them a contract. I mean, these guys were, these guys were pros, uh, maybe even a little bit ahead of their years as far as knowing how the music business works. And this song kind of tells that story a little bit, that rock and roll story of uh, the ups and downs. This one's Rock Maker. Yeah, usually bands kind of write their um, 
you know, they write there, Hey, the, the rock and roll business isn't all it's cracked up to be tuned like four or five albums into their career. But when you're a accomplished uh, session musician and you've seen kind of how this world works, it's really interesting that a band would uh, be this topical about the industry and about rock and roll as sort of a business as they, as they were on this song. It's a really nice uh, driving rock song, great verses, but really the pre-chorus section is, uh, is kind of the strongest point. I think it's a really nice vocal from Paige and a, and a really cool song to kind of kick off this, uh, this final trifecta of the album. It didn't happen enough through the life of Toto where David Page sang songs that were heavier. There was a real nice juxtaposition that happens when he sings lead vocals over a more driving kind of guitar driven song. And this is a good example of why it works. And that relationship works really well because he's not a typical vocalist for a hard rock band. And while I wouldn't call this a hard rock song, it's got some elements that would suggest that, you know, this song was getting at something a lot heavier than what Toto was normally doing. And I, I didn't think they did that enough. I didn't think that that Paige sang enough over the top of heavier songs. And I think that would have worked better if they would have done it more because it, it certainly works here. It's a nice vocal that combines well with with kind of a driving riff and turns into a song that, that's certainly worth your time here late in the album. I think that's perfectly said. Now we get to track nine, which was a song that was worth a lot of people's time because this was a huge hit. And it was certainly worth Nubs' time on that airplane that one day. Hold the line. Why is that guitar solo so <laughs> low in the mix? Luke just absolutely ripping on that solo. I, I agree. Well, this album is very produced. I mean, this thing's very compressed. You can you can tell it was a bunch of studio guys here. But look, I mean, it's a tremendous guitar performance on this song. And think about what you have going on here. This triplet piano, you know, kind of chopsticks type piano going on over this funk groove. And then this power guitar progression. I mean, this is a power chords to the max, just drilling over this funk groove and this triplet piano thing. And then you've got this New Orleans boy stepping up and giving this really soulful, pretty high register vocal performance with a guitar solo that just absolutely kills. You know, you can kind of see the uniqueness of all these different elements going into one song. I think that's part of what makes it such a quintessential, you know, Toto track is the combination of different rhythms, different beats, all getting sort of sandwiched together into this song that ends up just being a really, really good rock and roll song and a classic. You know, I agree with all of that for the song itself, but just for me personally, this song actually has not aged as well as it sounds like it has for you. The vocal harmonies are exceptional. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can listen to, but over time, this song has lost some of its luster for me. Some of that just could be discovering how much more there is to Toto. Um, I could see why it was such a big hit, but I don't revisit Hold the Line often. And when I do listen to this album, 
I, I tend to go past it just because I've heard it so many times and you should never penalize a song because it was overplayed or anything like that. I don't get into that, but it just hasn't aged as well with me. Listen, you're not alone in that opinion. I mean, when Steve Lukather put Toto on hiatus uh, back in 2008, he, he made a statement that actually pissed a lot of Toto fans off. Part of what he said in this statement was, I just can't play hold the line with a straight face anymore. And that was kind of a gut punch to some fans because obviously there are a lot of people that, you know, who love the band that really love that song. But it was interesting that he actually cited out that particular track as being the one that just seemed like he was so burnt out on that. He wanted to take a long break from, you know, performing and, and I think that that's kind of to your point, you know, of one that it, it, it is an easy song to pick on as far as perhaps for some, it became a little kind of cliche-ish or a little goofy. And I think even Lukather felt that way and, and mentioned that in his statement. But, but you can't deny the fact that when Toto still plays or when people talk about this band or think about this band, this is one of the songs that just is a classic and has been timeless. And when you go to the show, you're going to hear it and you're probably going to like it, especially in its live form and its live setup. Typically people are pretty happy to hear it except for you, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, it hasn't aged well for me, but, but Hey, I, I totally get the appeal, you know, 13 year old uh, nubs and toaf clearly had a memory with this song. So it's got its importance, but it's not one that I, it's not one I want to hear in my car uh, nowadays. There's a lot of other things I'd rather spend, you know, four minutes on. Well, let's see if they rescue themselves with the finale of their debut album. It closes out in intriguing fashion with Angela. It's basically a two-part song, um, very soft, soothing part one with a Lukather vocal. That's him on part one, the soft part, and then it's Paige on vocal during the heavy part. You know, to your point on Rockmaker, a definite example of a very, very driving rock beat which I think complements the soft section incredibly well. David Bowie had this really famous trick that he used to use uh, and he used it on all of his albums and he became known for it. This is kind of how genius Bowie was. Every one of his albums had a track on it that would foreshadow what was to come on the next album. And I've always felt that way about Angela, that Angela was kind of track one on Hydra. It was Mm. sort of predicting what was to come next. Mm. And of course, next comes Hydra with, these huge musical adventures and a, a very progressive album and a showcase for the band and what they do technically. 
And I, I always felt like Angela led into that. It was sort of that same idea where it was previewing what was to come. It's a pretty memorable closer. But to me, it's, it's sort of an incomplete song. Two very cool parts that come together in a really interesting way, but does not achieve the greatness that it maybe could have. It's a hell of a song, you know, when you factor in the the variation in tone, the the sort of blending of the the quiet soft section. And then I'm I'm telling you that that section jams. I mean that is a that is a really ripping guitar part. I like that it remains a little bit understated, a little bit mysterious. The fade off at the end where Picaro kind of picks up the drum beat and Paige just kind of keeps that piano cadence going. I mean, I, I think it's a, you know, there's something haunting about it as the closer, which I really like. You know, the bookend of Child's Anthem and Angela in sort of the way that this album starts and finishes, I think is really tremendous. What a great way to close the album. I mean, when I first heard it, I thought that, you know, we're getting kind of sort of like the way they close Hydra with um, Secret Love. I thought that we were getting kind of one of these slow, soft, Toto's going to get lovey-dovey here at the end. And boy, when that guitar comes in and Parquero's drums come in behind it, it, it kind of surprised me. You know, it kind of startled me when I first heard it. It was like, wow, they, they surprised you a little bit in kind of bringing in a rocker in this sort of two-part track. So, well, we've wrapped up Toto's debut album. And the question now becomes, did it matter? You know, I think this album matters as one of the great musicians' albums that musicians should all own. So I think it matters to musicians. I think that this is an album that you should check out just to hear what it sounds like when pure musicians come together with the goal in mind of creating some outstanding music. So I do think it matters in that way. From a commercial perspective, I don't think this album matters because it just doesn't have what it takes to catch on to a commercial audience. It's way too all over the place. The eclectic nature of Toto is their best friend and it's also their worst enemy. And the problem is that the album takes you for such a ride if you're a casual listener that it can be hard to keep up with. It does have a huge hit single on it that gives it some importance from a commercial perspective, but top to bottom, I don't see the connection between this album and casual listeners. So to musicians, yes, it has a purpose. It matters. Casual fans, I think, can move along to some of the other elements of the total catalog. What do you think, T? Does it matter to you? You know, I- I think that it should matter. I, I'm, I'm not sure if it does. And I think you make fair points. You know, when people start on this band, they're probably going to go to Total Four. And the band was even further polished and produced. And obviously there are timeless songs, not just for Toto fans, but for everybody. So I think that's probably the one that's always going to get a lot of the acclaim and a lot of the introduction to the band, but I, I do think this, this album should matter in the way that it was one of the first to really just be genreless. You know, at this time you were a disco act, you were a pop act, you were a country act, 
you were a rock act. I mean, you were kind of classified in one bucket or another. And I think part of why the band oftentimes had a hard time finding its footing, not just with critics, but also in sort of a uniformed, you know, consistent effort within an album. And I think Hydra's, the front half is great. And I think the back half's kind of okay. And I think Turn Back was pretty weak. And I think four is classic, but kind of has a little bit of, you know, peaks and valleys within it too. I do think top to bottom that this is the band's best album. I think if you go track one to track 10 and you kind of go through a lot of the different journeys and a lot of the different styles and a lot of the different genres, it is a little all over the place, but regardless of whether it's Georgie Porgy or whether it's Girl Goodbye or whether it's Hold the Line, it's, I'll tell you what, it's not the type of album you listen to and you think that there was one primary songwriter. It does show the, the variety and the diversity of Paige as a composer. Some of the performances on this record are just outstanding. And again, if you go listen to some of the isolated tracks for a few of these, the performances are tremendous. So I think that, you know, it's fair to say that this probably won't show up on a lot of classic albums lists or necessarily is it critically an album that that matters to most people but i do think that once you kind of dissect through the story of the band how they came together why they came together and that this was kind of the the first 10 tracks that you got out of them it really does kind of take you for a ride that some are going to enjoy and some aren't but I, I think that it's an album that 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 should probably matter more than it does without kind of overblowing it or overdoing it. So let's get to the final cut. Nubs, is this on the turntable? Is this in the collection? Is this collecting dust or is this in the for sale bin? Toto is is in the collection. It's a musician's album. And uh, from time to time, I will listen to it from the musician lens, but then, you know, Manuela run and I'll supply the love and the child's anthem. And some of the material on here do make regular or at the very least occasional appearances. It's a solid in the collection for me. It's not a, it's not a super regular listen top to bottom. And to your point, Toto never made a truly great top to bottom album. They really did not. This is probably the closest to it. And so aside from the compilations and playlists and things like that, which probably support the Toto experience a little bit better than any one of their albums, this and Hydra are the two that are pretty regular for me. They'd both be considered in the collection. And so I've, I'm giving this one in the collection. Where is it at for you? Where, where's your final cut? It's in the collection for me too. You know, I think that, you know, it would be on the turntable, but you know, I, I do think it's, it's really good at a lot rather than it being exceptional at anything. I wouldn't flip past any of these songs. You know, I've been spending a lot of time with this album recently. I, I at no point want to flip anything. So I do think that if you're looking at the original lineup of Toto, and that's kind of what we, we felt it was important to kind of take everybody through the band members and the history to give you the context. I think it's a rare instance where top to bottom, their first album was their best. And it's not perfect, and it's a little overproduced. But if you really strip this down and look at the musicianship, 
the composition, again, the unique factor of this, most of this album, nearly all of it being written by one band member. To give it the on the turntable, I feel like it's not quite there, but it is heavy in the collection for me as far as the final cut rating goes. All right, well, let's cool down a little bit in the only way that we know how. What's in your head? You got to go three times on that. You got to. Uns, tice, fee times. I think you got to go with that one. Nubs, songs on your radar, in your head. What do you got? Going through a little bit of a uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer thing right now. Watched a couple documentaries and I don't know, I'm kind of like, kind of like really into Carl Palmer interviews right now. So uh, Knife Edge <laughs> has been a regular rotation on the playlist lately. It's a, a really ELP. You rarely use the word jam, but it's a real jam off of the first ELP album, which is mine and many other people's favorites. Uh, Feeling That Way by Journey. One of mm. the Greg really, Raleigh, Greg Raleigh, baby. Exactly. Uh, a favorite, a favorite here on the uh, Two Twins in an Album pop- podcast, Greg Raleigh. Feeling that way is off the first album with Steve Perry, where Raleigh still had a big presence. And gosh, what a song. Everyone should check that one out. And then Summertime, we don't get to see him this summer, but listening to a lot of Unfreeze McGee and Turn and Run is, is something that I uh, hmm. listened to a few times this week off the Mantis album. And that's what's in my head. T, what is in your head? Mantis, a, uh, a great album. We, we may perhaps may perhaps talk about that one someday. Well, I should say we should. Uh, a favorite Kanye West track of mine off of The Life of Pablo, which is a very interesting, creative, you know, insane kind of uh, artistic experience like you get from Kanye for the most part. His song, Waves. Uh, featuring Chris Brown from a few years back is uh, I actually think it's kind of a special Kanye track in the vocal performance. And there's a choir that kind of takes you out of the track. It's, it's really good. So that Kanye track waves, check that one out. Even if you're not usually a huge fan of his, it's like two and a half minutes long, but it's kind of an experience listening to that one. Mike Shinoda, who is from Lincoln Park, uh, put out a solo record about a year ago, and ha- it's called Post Traumatic. You know, obviously, you know, great to support him. It's such an impact on Lincoln Park and and doing the solo thing, um, which is uh, which is great. Happy to support that and worth supporting. Uh, his track, Crossing a Line. I think it was kind of one of the strongest points of, of that record. I really hope that Mike continues to, you know, make music to some capacity, whether it's, you know, on his own or, or kind of collaborating with others and then uh, slowing things down a little bit, an old uh, Randy Newman tune. I mean, we mentioned him earlier with, I love LA, a song that Jeff Percaro drummed on, but he has a, a kind of a slower song that I actually was listening to just before we uh, hit the record button here on the old podcast here called Jolly Coppers on Parade. Big Randy Newman fan, uh, a real kind of beautiful, a little bit melancholy, but a really nice, uh, 
Randy Newman song that's kind of good to listen to when you're looking to wind down a little bit. So that's what's in our head. Uh, Nubs, thank you so much for uh, indulging me with a uh, episode on Toto. I, I, I hope the conversation was enjoyable. It sure was for me. Well, Wikipedia has Toto listed as was a band. So uh, the ever-changing world of whether Toto is or is not, we'll have to see what happens after the uh, pandemic has uh, completed. But uh, yeah, I appreciate the way you've always championed this group. And, and I think that's important. I think, it, I think this has been an important band for you to discover both in their studio output and what they've been able to do, really keeping the thing going for the past several years. Well, thank you all as well for, uh, for allowing us to talk Toto uh, here on episode five. And we really appreciate you guys tuning in. We appreciate you subscribing. Leave us a comment, leave us a rating, send us an album that either should be on the radar or that we should consider for an episode. We've already had a couple of those come in and we've already built them into the plan. So, um, so please keep those comments and those ratings coming and, and subscribe to us, uh, on Apple, on Spotify, on pocket cast, on Podbean, wherever you may find us, we will be there here on two twins and an album. We'll see you for episode six. See ya. Two That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.